Hello, and welcome to the Collider.com podcast. I'm Collider.com senior editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is deputy editor Adam Chitwood. How are you, folks? Today we'll be doing a mailbag episode. Uh, as you listen to this, we are currently in Toronto at the, the the Toronto International Film Festival, reviewing lots of films. We didn't have time to actually uh, record a podcast this week, so we banked it the previous week. Uh, so hopefully in the next seven days, someone isn't like, by the way, there's now 23 new star Wars films. Why not talk about that? <laughs> uh, that's why. Cause God, why would they announce that during TIFF? They would. They announced JJ Abrams with the director of, of Force Awakens at Sundance. And that's they announced true. he was the director of episode nine at TIFF. So <laughs> of course they fucking would. So uh, there's something, there's something glaring that we're not talking about right now. Uh, which I find very interesting. Um, but who knows? It's currently September 3rd when we're recording this. <laughs> yeah, we have no You're, idea. Yeah. All right. So we asked you all to reach out to us on Twitter with some questions. We've got the answers, hopefully. Uh, and we're just going to do a mailbag this episode. So uh, our first question comes from Chris Roman. What are some of your favorite theater-going experiences in recent memory and what made them so special? Um, I can start off with this one. Uh, my One that I keep coming back to I have seen every Twilight movie in theaters. I've, <laughs> I saw them all. I saw, and I went to every Comic-Con panel that they did because that's the job. And so if spoilers ahead for Breaking Dawn part two, uh, the Twilight movies are pretty faithful adaptations of the books, except you, when you get to part two, when director Bill Condon decided to just go off the rails and said, See, in the book in Breaking Dawn Part 2, what I've been told is that it's just a long... Like, it's it's very anticlimactic. This whole film builds this battle and then just have a conversation on a field and then everyone goes home. And obviously that doesn't work for a movie. So what they did instead was imagine what the battle would be like. And it is bonkers. And my the reason I love that memory is because I saw it in a theater filled with Twilight fans. I went to a screening of it. <laughs> and all of not a one in that room expected fucking Carlisle to get decapitated. <laughs> and the shrieks and oh just and then the and it gets nuttier from there. Like Dakota Fanning gets eaten by a wolf, a werewolf. <laughs> um people are falling into a giant fiery pit. It's it is like the best X-Men scene that's not in an X-Men movie. And I love it. And I loved that no one saw it coming. Now, granted, in the film itself, it turns out it's all been imagined. And again, they don't veer too far from the books. But the fact that they even shot it and that it's in the film, that every like for this one brief glorious minute, everyone thought that Twilight was different and that they just decided to go rogue and kill a bunch of characters that you loved was delightful. And I just, I had so much fun with that experience. So that's a treasured memory of mine at the theater. Honestly, that's probably one of mine as well. I did the same thing. I went with my girlfriend at the time, now fiance, to a midnight screening of the movie with a bunch of Twilight fans. And there were like tears. Like I saw people just bawling. And my girlfriend who had read the books turned at me just with like a pale face and said, this doesn't happen in the books. And everyone was going nuts. And I loved every second of it. Um, but it's also a reminder that I miss midnight movies. I mean, they, they've they changed. So screenings now start at like preview screenings on Thursdays at 6.30 or 7 or 8. And um, so they start early, so they start staggering them out. And I understand that 
as I understand it, the reason behind it is after um, that asshole shot up the Dark Knight Rises screening, they decided to start staggering screening so you couldn't so there wouldn't be a massive assemblage of people at one time that someone could bank on. Um, which is just incredibly sad and depressing and heartbreaking and yeah. stupid. And yet also uh, cynically, it also makes them more money. Yes, it does make them more money. Um, so now it's harder to have that kind of communal experience. Like I genuinely enjoyed waiting in line to see Hunger Games catching fire, getting in line early so we could get our seats. Now everything is reserved seating. Uh, where I live, uh, almost all the theaters are recliner seats and you just kind of show up you know, five, 10 minutes before the movie starts and get there. And so that communal experience of it is kind of gone. Um, so I, that's why I kind of savored that, savor that memory um, and memories like it of like getting together with a bunch of friends. I remember I brought Doritos tacos uh, for us in line for, I think it was Catching Fire or maybe it was the first Hunger Games. Um, and it was fun. Like it, you make kind of a, a whole thing out of it and uh, it's, it's really enjoyable. And uh doesn't really happen anymore. That's and so I guess the other one would probably be Avengers Endgame because that's the closest I've come to it. Um, not in terms of waiting in line and stuff, but just in terms of the electricity in the room and the applause breaks, uh, applause break moments. Those were uh, just super fun. But yeah. it's few and far between now. Like you know, I'll go see a highly anticipated movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and. I'm basically just hoping that everyone's quiet the whole time. Um, but everyone's in like recliner seats. So I just feel like I'm in a living room somewhere and the recliners mean that there are actually fewer seats in the theater, which means there are fewer people in the theater than normal. So I don't know. I miss those days. Cause I'm, I miss board. them too. I miss lining up and sort of being part of a, you know, communal experience. I mean, I, before I was a film critic, I would just get passes to go to movies like everyone else to early screenings. And I got a pass to an early screening of Borat and I was standing in line and, um, three people, three guys just started singing, throw the Jew down the well <laughs> in line, jumping up and down. And I wasn't offended because it's a fucking song from Borat. <laughs> and it was fun. Um, so, but you don't have that anymore. No. Um, so, uh, Stefan Bonomo asks, what's your opinion of the filmography of Robert Rodriguez? He's one of my favorite directors and we'd love to hear your thoughts on his overall work. Well, Stefan, <laughs> <laughs> here's my thing about Robert Rodriguez is I think he, the thing I like the most about Robert Rodriguez is that he has taken a lot. He has used his sort of ability to save money. He's always sort of been a very budget conscious filmmaker and his knowledge of technology and his knowledge of production to keep everything under one roof, to keep costs low and to try to keep and try to make his vision as much as possible. And I think also as a, a filmmaker in the Latino community, um, he's really, you know, tried to, to make his voice heard and really been, a, you know, trying to, put forward his interest with films like once upon a time in Mexico and machete uh, or a, or desperado going back or El Mariachi go back even further. Um, that being said, I feel like for all the control he exerts over his productions, there's not necessarily a lot of memorable creativity there. I feel like for all the control he exerts and for all the interests he has, I feel like the films that he makes are just never that challenging. Like he's basically just simply created the troublemaker studios is basically just a regular studio experience in Austin. Like I, I guess my question with Robert Rodriguez is 
why amass so much control if you're going to make movies they would let you make anyway? Like, was, was someone really stopping you from making, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think, like, Spy Kids movies? Like, there's I, obviously he's not the distributor for them. Like, he worked with Dimension and then Weinstein. But it just feels like Robert Rodriguez, like, in his most recent film, Alita, which I talked about recently and I, I quite enjoyed, again... That felt like the biggest swing from him possible, but beyond the bounds of what the film would allow. And so I think his films are very, uh, he's very technologically savvy, but I don't know if his storytelling chops are as broad. I'll tell you what, I was actually a really big Robert Rodriguez fan when I was younger, uh, when I was super into Tarantino, when I learned that he and Tarantino were friends. Um, I loved From Dust Till Dawn. I loved The Faculty. Uh, Obviously, Sin City, I was kind of obsessed with. And then I didn't see Grindhouse uh, until a, like a while after. I didn't see Planet Terror until a while while after. And then I just kind of fell out. Like I didn't see Machete. I didn't see you know Machete Kills or the Sin City sequel, anything like that. Um, I just kind of fell out with him. But I I don't know. I think he does take big swings. Like Machete doesn't really seem like a the kind of film that studios were making in 2010. That seemed uh, like a bit more ambitious and like planet terror i thought uh was a bit more ambitious i really liked once upon a time in mexico i haven't seen it since then which was gosh like 15 years ago um but i enjoyed that i enjoyed kind of the hands-on nature of it like the you know the cg blood and being able to kind of do everything yourself um was kind of cool but yeah as of late he hasn't really done anything that's really sparked my interest and i haven't seen alita um so uh, maybe that'll change my mind on that but I don't know. I, I liked his do-it-yourself nature. I liked the idea that like the adventures of Sharkboy and Lava Girl was just his son came up with an idea for a movie and he was like, you know what? I'm going to make that and we're going to write it together and this will be kind of a special thing that we do. Like That's kind of cool. It, no, again, the way the amount of control he exerts to just make whatever he wants is very cool. I just wish that his, I guess his, I wish his films were a little more transgressive, I guess. Yeah. It's sort of something like if you're going to work outside the system, take advantage of it, <laughs> you know? Yeah, uh, and I think at heart, he's more of like a B-movie director. Like something like The Faculty feels very much in... Which I haven't seen. I haven't seen The Faculty. So. Oh, The Faculty's good. But That's it's very I, like peak 90s horror movie. That's what I, yeah. So. But I really like The Faculty. If, if only one of uh, one of very few of John Stewart's acting roles. Yes, exactly. Which even he will rag on. <laughs> yeah, it's very, he's very bad in it. Um, all right. Uh, <laughs> Mark Sanchez forever as we head into the football season <laughs> says, what is the single greatest challenge facing studios like A24, Fox Searchlight, Focus Features in this tentpole-driven billionaire, billion-dollar or bus system? Will they even still exist as studios in five years? Um, you know, I think their financials are, it, it depends. I think the fact that a 24 has found success is heartening. Um, because I think in those sort of rule, like the rules still apply. So essentially a, a studio like a 24 doesn't spend a hundred million dollars to make a movie. Um, they spend about five to 20 million to make a movie. And then that movie makes about 40 million and then they're on to the next one. So there, if you're a 24, your job is not like the job of a major studio where when Disney spends $200 million on a movie, they expect that movie to make a billion dollars worldwide. Those are your, that's leverage. The more you put in, the more you hope to get out. Yeah, I think, I don't know. It's interesting. I think what they do really well, specifically a 24 is, eventize those movies like they make 
through the marketing, they make Midsommar a movie you have to see. They make, um, you know, even High Life a movie you have to see with the given all the um, oddities surrounding that movie. Uh, and sometimes it doesn't work. Like, uh, you know, I don't think The Farewell has done that great. Uh, oh, I take that back. It's made $15.9 million Yeah, Farewell's done pretty well. I would say something more like It Comes at Night. Which was like, yeah. what? Ooh, this is so mysterious. What's happening here? And you know, I don't think that film really took off in the way that they hoped. But well, but it also that... didn't give you a reason to see it. Like you, right. they didn't give you enough in the marketing. Like, oh, I gotta see that. It was just like there may or may not be spooky shit in the woods. Right. But then something like Midsummer, you know, then does become sort of something that people talk about. Yeah, or Hereditary, or First Reformed, leaning into Ethan Hawke's performance, and it's a word buzz, which is what Fox Searchlight does really well. Uh, they're kind of masters at this point, and I, I was talking to someone about this the other day and kind of explaining, when Disney bought Fox, uh, they promised they weren't going to shutter Fox 2000, which was the arm of Fox that made mostly like YA movies. So they made Love, Simon, they made The Hate You Give which are essential movies. I, I'm glad that those movies exist. And then Disney turned around and shuttered Fox 2000 anyway. And Disney and Bob Iger himself has said that he will not touch Fox Searchlight because that's kind of uh, they they're a well-oiled machine at this point. They win Oscars all the time. Uh, they just won Best Picture for Shape of Water. Um, they know what they're doing. And I really hope that that's true. Uh, I understand. I kind of cynically understand why they shuttered Fox 2000 because those are the kinds of movies that would go on Disney Plus or Hulu now. Um, they need content for their streaming services. And, you know, if you look at the box office receipts of Love, Simon and Hate You Give, those movies did not do well uh, or that well. I think Love, Simon did a little better. Uh, Hate You Give did not, which was a bummer because they're both really good films. But I think Disney sees those as streaming service movies. And I think the uh, the main impediment to studios like A24 and Fox Searchlight is making movies that people feel like they want to see as soon as possible and not wait for streaming. I don't think the the whole like you got to see it in a theater thing isn't really working anymore unless you're something like uh, Avengers Endgame or whatever. I more and more I'm feeling like the thing that gets people to go to the theater is you got to see it before your friends do or you got to see it before it gets spoiled for you or, or you got to see it before so you can be in on the conversation. I think we're all starving for communal conversations and with streaming, you know, strewn to the wind, uh, it's harder and harder to have those kinds of communal conversations. So when Disney and Marvel say you want to see Avengers Endgame as quickly as possible or else you're going to get really spoiled, you get the biggest opening weekend of all time by a massive margin. Um and so I think that's kind of what you got to do. And I think that A24 is really good at it. And I think it's easier said than done. I think that Annapurna Pictures is the flip side of that coin. They have not been able to do that. In taking over distribution of their films uh, with movies like Detroit, movies like Vice. Uh, and Vice did a little better, but they didn't keep the budget down on Vice. Uh, so, you know, Annapurna has been in some serious financial trouble, despite the fact that they make some really good movies. So, yeah. And that's, and it, I think it comes down to marketing and it, cause, cause they're, they're, you know, Annapurna is backing talented people. Um, yeah. but they're those, and they're making good movies as well, but no one is coming to those movies. And so Annapurna really needs to rethink it, what it's doing, because it's not the fact that they're, you know, that no one wants to see those movies. If you told me that if A24 had released the Sisters Brothers, I think the Sisters Brothers would have done better than had it been released by Annapurna. I'll put yeah, it that way. I agree. I agree with that. And I think uh, what's going to be increasingly key is that these studios partner up. Well, Fox Search doesn't have to, but partner up with a streaming service. So get a deal like Disney made with Netflix. Like if A24 made a deal with Netflix where, you know, 
Netflix became the uh, you know immediate streaming home of every A24 movie, I think that benefits A24. Yeah. So um, yeah, I, I don't. I think these studios will be around in five years. To answer your question, yeah. um, maybe not Annapurna with the rate that they're going, but I think A24. Fox Searchlight focus. I think they will be around because like Adam said, I think they, they create movies that, that spur conversations that people want to be a part of. Um, the, the, the flip side is that they are the other half of the donut hole that exists right now in studio filmmaking, which is that you can make a five to $10 million film, five to $15 million film. You can make a $200 million film. If you want to make a $40 million film, you're fucked. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, and that's kind of another thing that Fox 2000 was existing in. Um, and to, to a lesser extent, Fox, you know, 20th century Fox was doing. Um, but now, you know, so I think again, a, a studios like A24 and Fox Earth, like they will be around, but what about the, the mid range budget film for adults? That's still, that's still a scarce, uh, scarce animal right now. And that was the problem. With An endangered Vice. species. Thank you. Yeah. Brain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Vice cost 60 million and it grossed 76 million. And that's all like that's a loss when you factor in marketing costs and uh, distribution costs. That's a loss. Yeah. Um, Matthew Long asks, which actor slash actress would you like to see to most see have a comeback in Hollywood and or quality films? I'll let you feel this one. I have an answer, but I'll let you feel this one first. Uh, someone that comes to mind immediately is Cameron Diaz, mm. uh, who's retired. And I think she's just a really funny, uh, fun actress, uh, in terms of someone working who needs like a revival. Gosh, someone get Quentin Tarantino on the phone. I'm, I'm hard at, I'm, I'm bad at fielding these kinds of questions. Um, who do you have? I would like to. I would like to see Bridget Fonda in movies again. I don't know what happened. Oh yeah, she retired. She retired she and straight like straight up just left. She left. You know, she's married to Danny Elfman, which is all well and good. Um, but yeah, I mean, Bridget Fonda was in like a lot of good stuff. I mean, speaking of Tarantino, she was in Jackie Brown. You know, she was like an it girl of the nineties. Um, and uh, I thought she was a really strong actress. And I, I'm kind of bummed that we don't see her in as many movies or any movies these days. Uh, that bums me out a bit. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Um, gosh, yeah, I can't think of anyone better. Like, is there I'm anyone sure like, I'm trying to think like, is there any actor that just keeps getting into bad film? Like they're a good actor that keeps getting into bad movies. And I'm, you know, the thing is, is like, you don't really last that long if that's the case. Yeah. Watching a simple favor reminded me that Anna Kendrick needs a better agent. Yeah. Um, she's super talented and she just has not really, uh, like popped like she should have after pitch perfect. Yeah. Um, you know who I'd like to see, I guess as an actress, but also as a storyteller is Rashida Jones. Cause I really liked Celeste and Jesse forever. Yeah. And you know, again, she was supposed to sort of write toy story four and kind of did, but didn't. <laughs> so I'd like to see Rashida Jones kind of make another movie. Although I, I will say as a massive fan of both her and Mike Schur, I found their Black Mirror episode really that's, disappointing. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's right. They did Nosedive. Yeah. 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 Nosedive was too much like uh, Meow Meow Beans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's true. All right. Uh, Michael Walby asks, if you had to cast a blockbuster movie designed to flop a lot of the producers, who would you cast based on past box office performance? 
Um, if I'm answering to based on past box office performance and who is going to tank, the answer is obviously Johnny Depp. <laughs> like Johnny Depp just tank. Like Johnny Depp, you could, there's math on this. Like Forbes has done the math. Like about you know this <laughs> the, that in terms of his salary to box office performance ratio is terrible. Like you overpay for Johnny Depp every time, and it's not a surprise. That is not untrue. Um, if I was casting just based on like, oh, no one would ever see this and it would also be comically terrible, but a la the producers could be a hit against my expectations, I'd cast Tommy Wiseau. <laughs> That's fair. Tommy Wiseau and John Travolta and Johnny Depp in the same movie. All trying to outdo each other. Yes. All wearing two belts. Yes. All with weird hairstyles. Yes. Yeah. Um, Raul Cruz asks, what are your thoughts on the works of Kelly Reichardt? And I have to admit the only Kelly Reichardt movie I've seen is Meek's Cutoff, which I thought was fine. Like I, I like Westerns. Um, it's a very slow Western. Uh, I'm glad I saw it in theaters because I think if I had seen it at home, it would not have held my attention. I think just all the other distractions of watching a movie at home would have gotten the better of me. So I'm glad I saw it in theaters, but I know Kelly Reichardt, um, you know, people, people love those films. Um, but for me, uh, people love her films, but I've never been like, Oh, I got to see Wendy and Lucy or night moves. I just, I don't really go out for them. Uh, not to say that she's a, a bad director or a good director. I just doesn't really hook me the way that other filmmakers do. Yeah. I have not seen any Kelly Reichardt films. I am ashamed to say. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, Corey asks, what movie made you walk out and say, what the fuck? Um, now personally, I have a rule. I don't walk out on movies no matter what. And it has served me poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my feeling is, is you don't walk out. If you're a professional critic, you don't walk out on movies because you have a very easy job relative to other professions, which is you're going to sit in a chair for two hours and someone is going to tell you a story and you can just, you can like, it's not working in a coal mine. Like you can't like, I don't know, walking out on a film just seems like the most, like taking an entitled position and making it more entitled. So I will, I will not walk out on films. That being said, when the film is over, there have been movies that made me say, what the fuck? And the one that comes to mind most recently is Aloha, which (laughs) my, my fiance at the time and now wife, we looked at each other after we saw Aloha and we're like, what during the film, we were like, what is this movie? (laughs) I can't tell you to this day what Aloha is. It's trying to be so many different things. It's so weird. It's like Cameron Crowe's brain got caught in a blender at some point. It's, it has like huge stars. They're in a tropical location, but Emma Stone's going to play a Hawaiian woman for some reason. Um, and you know, the fact that, you know, I know everyone seized on that, but that is like not even the weirdest thing about Aloha. <laughs> like the character relationships are weird. The plot is weird. Like it's about like a space launch. Like he's a pilot, but like, he's also like, out of sorts with his family. And like, it's so weird. What John is John Krasinski has no lines. Yeah. It's a, it's the weirdest freaking movie. Like not weird in like an interesting way, just weird. in like, what was Cameron Crowe even going for with, with Aloha? I'm trying to think 
Uh, I mean, the first time I saw No Country for Old Men, I did not get it, and I'm not ashamed to say that. And that was when it opened in theaters in 2008. Uh, and I had just seen There Will Be Blood previously in the theater and loved it. And everything about that movie clicked for me um, thematically. Like, I got it. I was on the level. No Country, I just didn't understand it. I was either not being attentive enough or was just not watching movies critically enough at that point. Um, and so it took until I revisited it a few years ago for me to like decide that I actually liked that movie. Um, I'm not sure I said what the fuck, but I was just kind of like, what? One film I, yeah, it is a weird one. No Country is a, not an easy film. And I'm still and you kind watch of a, it again and you're like, oh, it's about futility. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Got oh, it. it's supposed to be anticlimactic. Yeah. There yeah. we go. There, nothing matters. Everything's futile. Uh, yeah. And I was like, oh, everything's futile. But if you step out of line, justice will be swift. Yeah. Um, hooray. <laughs> if you, um, a film that I, I, I do remember my review and my review was I gave it three and a half, huh? And a what was uh, Synecdoche, New York. Uh, Charlie Kaufman's Synecdoche in New York, which is about a guy who builds a play about his life. And then that play builds a play about his life. It's so weird. At one point there's like, the woman's just like, oh, my house is on fire. And she's just like, oh, all right. Like, it's a very weird, like you've, you've seen, you've seen Synecdoche, New York, right? No, I haven't. Char- by it's, Charlie it's Kaufman? My- yeah, it's been in my Netflix queue forever. Dude, and, it's so fucking weird. Well, that's why I've heard from everyone that it's really weird. And so it's hard when like it's on a weekend and I finally have some time to relax and I want to watch something. And I'm like, do I want to dive into the movie that everyone says they don't really understand and is kind of depressing and sad and weird and strange? I'll watch it at some point, I swear. Yeah, give it a go. I would say it's a think of a less accessible Anomalisa. <laughs> You're oh, kind of getting there to synecdoche. How is that possible? I know, right? But it is. It is. Um, I love that it exists, but it's it's super weird. Um, what? Okay. Uh, Alexandra Lambert asks, what is your least favorite movie take that you've ever heard? Hmm. Movies are bad, actually. Um, <laughs> I, have, I have one in my back pocket, but, I, you know. Do you, do you need, do you need some time to think about yeah, it? Yeah, you go first. I'm going to think about this one. The, the worst, my least favorite movie take I've heard is that films of a certain age should not be watched because they are problematic. Oh I, yes. That, That's my answer too. <laughs> I, I won't, I, I won't identify who I heard say this. Um, cause I don't want to call shit down on them, but this person said, you know, I won't see films made before 1990 or something like that because they are problematic. And my response to that is I, I don't, I don't think you become a better student of history. I don't think you become a better film critic. I don't think you become a better anything when you just remove yourself from the conversation. When you, when you, anyone that tries to show ignorance as a virtue doesn't really win points with me. What I think it's a lot harder to engage with something and say, yes, this has problems. Yes, it was made at a certain time. So why is it like this? Why did why why, why is it this way? Just because you watch something from a certain time doesn't mean you are therefore endorsing the views of that time period. You are simply learning. I mean, if you, and, and, and I hate to break it to you, but I can guarantee to you in 40 years, not even 40 years, 20 years, people are gonna look back at where we are today and be like, fuck, 
they were really problematic. Like nothing, we're not at a pure point here. We, it's a constantly developing, ongoing conversation that takes work and takes engagement of those things that you find problematic. And if you think, oh, no, no, we're fine today, I will ask you this. When is the last time you heard a prison rape joke? And prison rape jokes are still considered pretty okay. And I, I can cite a film from, what, 1998? dirty work that has a prison rape joke in it. And those jokes still get made today because get hard Hard has a long prison rape joke. And like the thing is, is because people think that shit is still acceptable, even though like we were, you know, so the fact of the matter is, is like people are going to 20 years from now are going to look back at the films we're making and be like, no, that's problematic. And it's not to say that those people are wrong, but rather that we all have to engage at where we're coming from and not assume that this time is our most, this is the most enlightened we shall ever be. We have reached peak enlightenment. We have never reached peak enlightenment. And the only way to become more enlightened is to engage with your history and with texts. You're not going to get there through ignorance. Yeah, one of my least favorite things is applying current social politics to any film ever made. So saying like, oh, this movie is problematic because this, 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 and this, which are like maybe admittedly social politics or social norms that have only become accepted in the last three to one year. Um, You know, uh, if you look back at... uh, most films from the 90s, uh, 80s, going back that way, uh, trans people were mostly jokes. Like the, it was few and far between that you had trans identity and and trans characters who had actual complex lives. Not to mention the way that like women were treated in films, uh, the way gay people were treated in films. It, you know, not surprisingly, it's mostly minorities. But I also don't think that you can look at a film and say that, uh, you know, oh, this film is pretty worthless because uh, it's not woke enough for 2019. Um, And we've talked about this before. I think one of the best pieces ever written on this topic is Molly Ringwald's essay about the movie she was in with John Hughes and how um, aspects of – it's Pretty in Pink, right, where uh, he takes the underwear – Aspects of films like that that are troubling, to say the least, when you're considering them now. But at the time, when she was young, sometimes she found them troubling. Sometimes she didn't. Sometimes she spoke up. Sometimes she didn't have a problem with it. And it's learning to live with the idea that – or live with the notion that, yes, this movie has problems. It probably had problems when it was made. Um, it's not entirely a, and even like maybe even not entirely a socially acceptable, um, film. And yet I can also acknowledge that this film means a lot to a lot of people and maybe spoke to a lot of people at that age and, uh, provided some comfort to outsiders at the time or some comfort to people who felt alone or strange or different, um, so I think, as you said, you and then you also become a student of history because you learn, like, you know, is Breakfast at Tiffany's a bad movie because of Mickey Rooney's, uh, you know, yellow face? No, I don't necessarily think it makes it a bad movie. Is Mickey Rooney's performance extremely troubling? Yes. And I think it's absolutely apt to go back and look at why was that allowed at that time? Why was that prevalent at that time? Why was that part of that movie? I mean, even anytime I go back and watch Breakfast at Tiffany's, it's really tough for me to watch those scenes. Um, 
but I don't think that means that you can just completely disregard the entire film. Um, and then also looking at intent, like what was the intent of the filmmaker? What was this filmmaker into? Again, I think that just makes you a better student. But the bottom line is that criticism is not binary. Things are not right or wrong. Um, very, I mean, very rarely. Uh, it's you can't just put you can't just put a 2019 rubric up against every single film ever made and say yes, this ticks all the good boxes and it's fine, or no, this ticks all the bad boxes, it's not fine. Um, and you know, it's I think it's it it does a disservice both to you as a viewer and cinephile and to the filmmakers who made the film yeah i again i just i don't think you enrich anything by being by being i'm not going to be i'm not going to engage and i feel like that kind of boycott kind of mis misrepresents what boycotting even is or what protest even is that there that simply an inaction is somehow as worthy as an action and i just feel like either you you have to do the work at some point and I, i'm not saying that the work is easy i'm not saying that you know you will enjoy the film but again i'd also you know we're we're pretty deep into film and we're not there are some people that just i only want to see movies i'm going to enjoy and that's that's fine but if you want to talk about film seriously you have to talk about films that you not may not necessarily enjoy but you have to see to to understand where they're coming from yeah um okay orlando sanchez asks What's the most frivolous purchase you've ever made? Do you still use it or do you regret it? I spent thousands on Mondo posters. Haven't regretted buying any of them, but selling them for far less than what they are currently worth. <laughs> interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, frivolous purchases. I'm sure I've made them. Um, good heavens knows. Um, I mean, I can probably just say Funko Pops. Like, I have a number of Funko Pops. I'm never Pops. now going to... Scott Wampler retweeted this joke. I'm never going to be able to see Funko Pops now without thinking of precious memories for millennials. <laughs> That's what they are! Precious moments. Precious moments. Right. Oh, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> they are, kind of. Yeah. I mean, it started as just like, you know, Wally is one of my favorite films of all time. And, oh, the Wally and Eva are kind of cute. I would like to have those. And then my fiancé is obsessed with Harry Potter, as am I. And she wants – she's more of like a, like, I want to have all of the Harry Potter ones. Mm. As opposed to – I'm more like, I like this one. It's cool. I like this one. It's cute. I – this would be fun to put. And now we're like, do you really want to display all of these? <laughs> do you want our house to look like the 40 year old virgin? Um, so there's the, it's, it's just kind of like, why, why do I have all of these? <laughs> it's like beanie babies all over. Right. Although beanie babies were bought like almost solely for like, Oh, they're going to be worth a lot of money. Yeah. They, they, which I felt was kind of a bastardization of them. Like they were a cute little snuggly toy, but they're like, no, you have to keep the tag on or else it won't be worth anything. I'm like, well, that's stupid. Yeah, I, mean, I, I never really got into Beanie Babies. My poor mom would drive around to various McDonald's to try and find the like tiny Beanie Baby uh, special ones that you needed for whatever reason. So, yikes! And then we sold them at a garage sale for like fifty cents each or something like that. So, nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> Life as a collector. Yes. So that's um, why I don't really collect anything. Like I have some Mondo posters, but I live by the Matt Goldberg rule before I purchase any Mondo poster. Do I like the movie and do I like the poster? I have to answer yes to both questions before I even consider buying it. It's a good rule, folks. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, <laughs> unless you're unless you are a straight Mondo collector and like you are you have a flat file and you can really, you know, deal them in and deal them out. Just 
honestly, you will be surprised at how few Mondo posters you buy if it just yeah. has to come to that cross section of do I like the film and do I like the poster? Because like I love the Graduate, but I don't, and they've made Graduate posters. I don't really think they're that good, so I don't buy them. So you know, yeah, it's a it's a it's a delicate balance. Um, I collect all kinds of crap. Um, right now, you I talk about your Lego. <laughs> God, no. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I have a lot of Legos that are currently in bins because, you know, when you when you move, when you're a bachelor, you and you have your own apartment, you can just fill it, fill your apartment with Legos. <laughs> yeah. But when you get married and move into a house together, uh, that doesn't fly so much. <laughs> so uh, I'm more careful with the Legos that go out. Uh, although I am currently building the the Ultimate Collector series Hulkbuster. So. There you go. Um, okay. But that'll live in my office. Uh, right now I'm collecting two things. I'm collecting uh, pins from Mondo, little enamel pins, which are easy. Like you just get a cork board and then you just hang them up. And that's really easy. It doesn't take up a lot of space. And again, do I like the movie? Do I like the pin? It keeps things simple. Uh, and then the other thing I've been collecting recently is retro gaming. Um, because I just, I feel so left behind by modern video gaming, which is a very much like games as a service. So if you're like, you're into, you know, Fortnite or destiny where it's like, which is divided up into like seasons, it's like this season in Fortnite, you know, this event is happening. So you have to be ready for this event and you have to be on it this time. And you have to, you know, pay this for this loot box and you have to play this much to be good or else you're going to get killed immediately. Like, that all just sounds exhausting. And I'd rather just go back in time to games that I never played before or games that I loved and haven't played in a while. So I bought an old Game Boy off eBay. Um, I've been buying used Wii games, uh, old GameCube games, um, basically just to sort of, you know, back catalog this stuff and start digging into uh, these games I never played before. I still play some newer games, like I'm playing, you know, Fire Emblem Three Houses right now on my Switch. But for the most part, what I'm collecting are uh, older stuff. Is it frivolous? Absolutely. I am a grown-ass man who did not need to pay $80 for an original Game Boy, but I did it gladly because I love Game Boy and it was the first system I ever owned. And $80, it's $80. I didn't break the bank on a Game Boy. But you play the old Game Boy and you're like, how did my eyes ever work for this? Because it's blurry and it's green. And like your eyes these days with our phones are so used to everything being backlit. And it's just so weird going back to a Game Boy, which has none of those things. And <laughs> it's just kind of weird. Um but, you know, I can play my old Game Boy games on uh, an, uh, uh, a Game Boy Advance SP, which is front lit, uh, has better battery life, doesn't have the blur. So there's ways to play these games, but I still have the old original Game Boy because it's nice to have it. Um, and, you you know, if a small child comes over to your house, like one of my like nieces or nephews, and they look at it and they'll be like, what the hell is this? <laughs> I'm just kidding. They would never say You mean hell. you have to use your hands? That's like a That's baby. Like a baby. <laughs> Right. <laughs> living in Back to the Future Part 2, folks. We are. All the worst. But we're living in the Biff reality as well. <laughs> Just takes the worst, worst parts of both. I know, right? Uh, we're, we're, do I get hoverboards? No. But you get a shitty casino magnate to run your life into a fascist dystopia. Hooray! Do I get 15? No, you get Fast and Furious 10. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> All right, and I think this is our last question. Uh, does The Last Jedi hold up to you both? Oh, snap. You can't escape The Last Jedi. Can't escape it. Um, I think The Last Jedi is fucking great. And I know that it's divisive. 
Um, but I, I truly feel like it is, you know, and I don't, I hate making sort of the, in 10 years, everyone will agree with me because no one's going to fucking call. No one in 10 years is going to listen to this podcast, set a reminder for 10 years from now and be like Goldberg on this podcast. You said that everyone would love, you know, but I really think the last Jedi is going to hold up because I think it is not as indebted to, you know, sort of tired old mythology. I think it's really trying to do something new and exciting. And I feel like its biggest detractors are, they're the kind of people that I feel would also hate Empire Strikes Back because Empire Strikes Back is nothing like Star Wars. Empire Strikes Back is very different. And because, but you know, these days, you know, in 70, in, in 80, when Empire Strikes Back comes out, you can get away with that because people aren't, we have this weird thing now where fandom becomes so ingrained to your identity that you can't let it go. And so it either has, it's binary. It's either, it's either the thing that I love and it's the thing from my childhood or it's not. And if it's not the thing from my childhood, then it's, then it's bad. And I, I just feel like there's a reason that the last Jedi got blowback that the force awakens didn't and the force awakens, which is fine. Like I enjoy it for the most part, but I don't think it's particularly memorable, but I also think the, the force awakens is very nostalgic and, People like that nostalgia because it reminds them of when they were a kid. You probably saw Star Wars when you were a kid, and it reminds you of when you were a kid, when th- when you were safe and things were nice and you got what you wanted and being a kid is nice. You remember all the good things about being a kid. And Force Awakens is like, let me tell you, or not Force Awakens, Last Jedi is, let me tell you about war profiteering. <laughs> and so it's harder to get on board with that, but I think it's a natural evolution. So for me, it's like, if you want to grow up, maybe give Last Jedi a chance because it is a film that is challenging its audience and it tells a really strong story and it takes it in unexpected directions. And I think if you're looking for bullshit mythology and lore, that exists in the world, but I don't think your Last Jedi is going to give it to you and I don't think it should give it to you. So, you know, I, I think Last Jedi is great. I I am very much looking forward to rewatching Force Awakens and Last Jedi in the lead up to Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, same. Um, yeah, Last Jedi still holds up tremendously well for me. Uh, and I remember that was the thing at the time is people were like, oh, you're just being like reactionary. You're not going to like it later on. Like, oh, no, it's still one of my favorite Star Wars movies ever made, if not possibly my favorite. Um, yes, the casino sequence goes on a bit too long with the chase and stuff. Yes, there are flaws in it like there are flaws in any other film. But pound for pound, I think the filmmaking in it is more motivated and specific and thematically driven than the filmmaking in uh, most of the other Star Wars movies. Definitely the the new Lucasfilm era, era of Star Wars movies. Um, you know, shot composition, cinematography, uh, the performances, it, the the editing, the way that scenes progress, I think, are, are also uh, really tremendous. So just from a filmmaking perspective, I absolutely adore it. And then story-wise, I just find it really compelling and interesting because it's it's challenging and it's surprising in the best ways. And it's not giving you – I think people want kind of the Hallmark movie version. They want you know their heroes to be in a little peril, but they want to know that their heroes are going to be safe when it's over, and their heroes are going to be intact, and everything's going to be fine. Um, you know, like Hallmark movies inject drama and conflict because that's 
how you make a story, but you know that it's not going to end up with any major trauma or anything bad happening or the characters being challenged or um, forced to defend, explain, or change their views uh, and morality. And I think that The Last Jedi does all of that to a lot of the characters. And I love the interplay between Rey and Kylo Ren. I love the performances. The throne room sequence is one of the best shot Star Wars sequences ever, I think. Um, I love that you just dispatch with Snoke. Um, but yeah. like you said, like if you want the mythology, if you want the kind of comforting hero's journey, that's not The Last Jedi. And there are other Star Wars movies. There are plenty of other Star Wars movies that give that to you. So I don't necessarily think that Last Jedi is out of line by being a little bit different. Um, by challenging you in that way. But I agree with you. I think, you know, uh, most of us have grown up in a world in which The Empire Strikes Back is one of the best sequels ever made. So going back and watching those movies, you go into it with a mindset that like, oh, I know that Empire Strikes Back is one of the best movies ever made. And so that preconceived notion, I think, kind of colors a bit of the danger of it. Um, and then obviously, once you see The Return of the Jedi, it's like, oh, yeah, everything cuddly and nice and fine again. Um, I don't really like Return of the Jedi that much, if I'm being honest. I think um, Return of the Jedi is half of a good movie. Yeah. And then half yeah. of it is boring ass shit on Endor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I adore The Last Jedi. It still holds up for me. If it doesn't work for you, that's fine. I just don't understand why you would waste how many years has it been now? Two years of your life yelling at people on the internet, telling them that they are wrong or yelling at Ryan Johnson. Like, surely there are better ways to spend your day. Apparently and, not. Yeah, and that just speaks to me an insecurity in your feelings on a movie. Like I love plenty of movies that people don't like. It doesn't make me angry that they don't like them. I'm just like, ah, yeah. Like I really would have loved for more people to have gone out and seen Bad Times at El Royale. I would have loved for the critical reception to to have been better. I'm not seeking out everyone who bad mouthed it or everyone who hasn't seen it and forcing them to change their minds. Or conversely, like I think, like you know, the Boondock Saints is hot garbage, but I don't <laughs> spend my days selling everyone. No, you're wrong. Let me yeah, tell you, Boondock Saints on Twitter. Getting yeah, getting people like, how dare you like this? I don't care what you like. I really don't. I will say about Last Jedi, one th more thing to add um, is that I think that it challenges people in a really, I think that's something that some people have taken umbrage with is that it is, and we talked about this in our previous episode about Ryan Johnson, is that he makes movies about the thing that he's making the movie about. So with, you know, a film like, the Brothers Bloom, it's a Connors film, but it's also about Connors films. Like it's it's very self-aware in a way that's not parody, but also acknowledges it's the tropes and the themes of the genre. And Last Jedi is thinking about what it means to be a Star Wars film. And so this film is constantly asking, okay, so Poe is a hero. What makes him a hero? And, and then it leaves it. It's like, what is, if you were going to say that this guy is a hero, what does that mean? Oh, you like Star Wars. Okay, well, this is a war. What do you think war is? What, how does war function? Oh, you like the, oh, you like the Jedi. Well, why do you like the Jedi? And it, it challenges you and says, well, maybe these things that you thought were automatically great actually have some nuance and some shading to them. 
and they need to be reconsidered and recontextualized. And I think that makes for a richer experience for the viewer and the storyteller rather than simply saying, aren't the Jedi always great when all evidence shows, no, they kind of suck. And I'm glad (laughs) someone made a film like, yeah, they kind of fucking suck. And maybe we don't need them anymore. And so I think that's, I don't know. I think Last Jedi is, is pretty great. And I like that it challenges the audience. I'm very excited to see uh, how Rise of Skywalker uh, moves on from there. I'm dreading it, to be honest. <laughs> I'm really I dread, I'm, I've been dreading it since the moment I saw that reconstructed Kylo Ren mask. Because that's such a great moment in Last Jedi when he breaks the mask. Because Snoke is right. He's pretending to be Darth Vader. That's the yeah. thing. And he breaks it because he doesn't want to identify with Vader. But he, And he's consciously saying, let the past die. He he is controlled by it, but he doesn't want to imitate it. He doesn't want to be owned by it anymore. And so he puts that stupid mask back on. What does that mean? And maybe it maybe it's explained in, for, in, in Rise of Skywalker. But in a vacuum, I see that mask and I'm like, no, that needs to stay broken. That was a big moment for that character. Why are you hitting the undo button? Yeah, maybe it's a misdirect. JJ loves to do that. It is true. Maybe it's a misdirect. Maybe, and maybe Kylo's real name is, you know, John Harrison. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I will never stop being mad over Star Trek Into Darkness. You can't make me. <laughs> um, all right. Well, thank you all for sending in mailbag questions. We're always happy to take your questions, um, not just for mailbag episodes. Always feel free to reach out to us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. And you can find me at Matt Goldberg. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll be back with you next time.